We're coming this morning to a passage that I'm not sure any of us really enjoy reading. It's bloody. It's horrible. If someone was to take this passage and turn it into a movie, you wouldn't want your kids going to see it. And yet, it's a passage that tells us a lot. It tells us something about how slowly and surely God brings about his plan and his purpose. And to help us understand how God brings about his plan and his purpose, I want to ask you a very simple question about this passage. And the question is this. How many kings do we see in this passage? How many kings do we see in this passage? We see the word king nine times, if my math is correct. But every time we see it, it's referring to King Saul. And yet, one of the things that this passage shows us is that he is not the only king. And his kingdom is not the only kingdom. And so what I want us to do is I want us to to start with King Saul. I want us to learn about him and what's going on in this passage. But then I want us to see the other king. Although actually when you think about it, there are three kings in this passage. But we're really going to look at two this morning. So let's look at Saul and let's see what we see. And surely what we see here is a man who is completely off the rails. Saul is insanely jealous of David. I mean, he looks at David and he sees a man who is a better leader than he is. And Saul knows it. And worst of all, everybody in the whole country knows it. And so Saul decides, well, if I'm going to stay king, if I'm going to cling on to the throne, David has to sleep with the fishes. By this point, Saul is just completely and utterly paranoid. Some of you might be familiar with a movie called Downfall. And it's a German movie. It's all about the last two weeks of Adolf Hitler's life. Um, But there's a scene in it that's really, really famous. And especially some of the younger folk. You've probably seen this scene because it's been spoofed hundreds and hundreds of times um, on YouTube. Great, I'm seeing some nods. Um, But in this scene, Hitler is in his bunker. And he has several generals um, just standing there. And he absolutely explodes. He rants and he raves. The army has been lying to me. The generals, they're just a bunch of cowards and traitors. I have been betrayed by the German people. I have been betrayed by the army. And everybody who's betrayed me is going to pay with their blood. And and it's a brilliant scene. I mean, the acting is just incredible you can see the actor shaking as he rants and you can hear the desperation and the self-pity in his voice it's pathetic well that's Saul in this chapter he's totally paranoid and he's totally desperate in verse 6 we see that Saul is surrounded by his officials Uh, Notice in verse 7 that he has surrounded himself 
specifically with men of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin is Saul's own tribe. And yet, even though he's surrounded by men from his own tribe, as far as he's concerned, everybody's against me. I mean, just imagine standing there. Imagine listening to Saul as he starts to rant and rave in verse 7. Imagine listening to the tremble in his voice. Imagine seeing how he starts to shake. Maybe he's even got a twitch in his face. Notice verse 6. Saul has got a spear in his hand. I mean, can you imagine standing there? You couldn't take your eyes off this spear, could you? Because you're thinking, he's bound to throw this at someone. And I need to keep on watching because it might be me. And it might happen any minute. Imagine listening to the shouts and the screams. Verse 8. Why have you all conspired against me? I mean, as far as Saul's concerned, there's not a single person that he can trust. He can't trust these men, even though they're from his own tribe. And in verse 8, he can't even trust his own son. Notice verse 8. No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. That's David. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. So Jonathan has been working with David. Jonathan and David have concocted a plan. Jonathan and David have managed to get all of Saul's officials from Saul's own tribe on board. And they're all out to get Saul. Except there's no truth in it, is there? There is no conspiracy against Saul. David has no intention whatsoever of laying a finger on the king. And even if he did, and he doesn't, Jonathan would have no intention of helping him to do that. And yet, Saul is just so far gone that the facts don't matter. I mean, imagine if you were brave enough, bold enough to go up to Saul and say, Look, Saul, here are the facts of the matter. You've got this wrong. There is no conspiracy. What would Saul say to you before he rams you into the wall with the point of his spear? He'd say, well, you would say that because you're clearly part of the conspiracy too. He's completely paranoid. Notice as well, Saul is having a real pity party. Very much like Hitler in the bunker. After everything I've done for you, this is how you treat me. You know, Notice um, halfway through verse 8. None of you is concerned about me. I mean, it's, it's absolutely pathetic, isn't it? This man is supposed to be the king. He's supposed to be this brave, inspirational figure. And what's he doing? He's whining and he's whinging like a spoilt child. Nobody cares about me. It's completely pathetic. Now, before we move on, I want to make two, I suppose you could call them side applications, secondary applications from this passage. Uh, These aren't the main point of the passage, but I do think that God gives us a couple of warnings in Saul's conduct. 
And the first one is that we need to be on our guard when it comes to conspiracy theories. Now, I don't know about you, but I know some people, and they've ended up just like Saul. They've got themselves sucked into all of these different conspiracy theories. And the conspiracies weren't real. And one of the ways you know they weren't real is that they no longer believe them, but they've maybe moved on to other conspiracies. But I do know some people, and they've got themselves so convinced that everything, even about the way they think, is just sort of twisted and warped to fit with the conspiracy. I've met people, and if you try to show them evidence to disprove what they believe, or even to maybe cast doubt on what they believe, well, they see that evidence then as clearly just another part of the conspiracy. And it's like a vicious circle, isn't it? The more you try to talk with them, the more they become entrenched. Now, there will, of course, be some conspiracy theories that are true. I mean, it's, it's inevitable some of them are going to be true. At the very least, some of them are going to have elements of truth to them. But they're certainly not all true. And so even if we are absolutely convinced in our minds that something is true, we do need to be wary because we don't want to go down the same path as Saul. Second application, we need to be very, very careful when it comes to self-pity. I wonder, have you ever met someone who's just constantly stewing on things? They're obsessed. This person did this to me. That person treated me like that. I've done so much for these people and this is all I get in return. And sometimes, I've certainly met people like this, sometimes their brains end up like a broken record. It's just stuck on the one train of thought. Woe is me. Let me just say, if you find yourself just playing these things over and over and over again in your mind, you need to be really, really careful because Saul shows us where that ends up anyway those are two sort of side applications I want us to get back to Saul because now what I want us to see is how Saul's paranoia and Saul's pity party turn into one of the most despicable incidents that you'll ever read about in the word of God now last week Mark was here And Mark was preaching in the passage before this. Uh, We saw David go into Nob. And while he was there, he spoke with the high priest. And he asked the high priest to give him and his men some food. Um, Now, we saw David did not tell Ahimelech the full story. He didn't tell him that Saul was out to get him. He didn't tell him he was on the run. He basically lied. And he told him, I'm on a special mission. And we saw last week there was a man there. A man called Doeg. Edomite. Well, Doeg reappears in today's passage. In verse 9, he sees his chance. Saul is ranting and raving about how he can't trust any of these people. So Doeg speaks. And he says in verse 9, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of 
Atihub at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So Saul, apparently he can't trust his own tribesmen. Apparently he can't trust his own son. But you know, it's okay, because at least he can trust Doeg the Edomite. There's a trustworthy character, if ever you met one. And Doeg has this very, very juicy piece of intelligence. Except it's not actually all that useful. Because David was at Nob, but he's not anymore. David is long gone. So what's Saul going to do? Well, he can't get David. David is out of reach. So instead, he's going to simply lash out at anybody who has had anything to do with David. And so in verse 11 to verse 16, he puts Ahimelech on trial. And I reckon Ahimelech has actually put up a pretty decent defense. Ahimelech has shown very, very clearly that he's not part of some conspiracy against Saul. He's shown that he didn't know why David was there. He was just doing what you would expect any loyal citizen to do. But Saul's thinking, remember, it is twisted. It is warped by everything that's been going through his head. And so Saul pronounces the verdict. He's guilty. And he pronounces the sentence. Ahimelech and his family and all the other priests are all to be killed. And this is supposed to be the king of God's people. And he's having the priests of God slaughtered. Of course, this is such a wicked thing that none of Saul's soldiers are actually willing to obey the order. In fact, there's only one man who's willing to do this. Who is it? It's that scumbag Doeg, isn't it? And just look at the ferocity of the man in verse 18. You can easily imagine him slaughtering all these people. And as he does it, he's got a big smile on his face. Verse 18. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. That's just another way of saying priests. He also put to the sword knob the town of the priests. With its men and women, its children and infants. And its cattle, donkeys and sheep. So here's Saul, because really he's the man for all of Doeg's wickedness who is ultimately responsible for this. And what's Saul doing? He is showing the nation who's boss. You don't mess with Saul. Except, I think of anything, what this actually does is it shows the weakness of Saul's position. For one thing, Who is Saul's closest ally? Who is the only man that Saul thinks he can trust? Doeg the Edomite. A murderous, despicable piece of scum. I realise I'm sort of reading between the lines a little bit here, but 
don't know about you, I get the impression, I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm probably writing this, but I get the impression Doeg is just a bit of an opportunist, isn't he? Doeg doesn't actually care about Saul. Doeg isn't interested in who wins uh, between Saul and David. Doeg is just in it for what Doeg can get out of whoever's going to win. Uh, and so Doeg waits, doesn't he, until the perfect moment. He could have told Saul earlier, I suppose, but he waits until the perfect moment, until Saul is at his wit's end, and then he spills the beans. And you think to yourself, well, with friends like these, who needs enemies? That's a good job, actually, because Saul doesn't even have enemies. It's all in his head. I think the sheer ferocity of the attack as well also tells us something about Saul's weakness. I mean, let's just assume for a minute that David was actually out to get Saul. And let's assume for a minute that Ahimelech, the priest, knew that David was out to get Saul. Even though he didn't and even though David wasn't. Let's assume that Ahimelech was guilty. It's a total overreaction, isn't it? To kill not just Ahimelech, but all the priests and all the men, women, children and infants of this town. Why does Saul overreact? Surely it's because the man he really wants to get is David, but he's frustrated because he knows he's completely powerless to lay a finger on David because David is under God's protection and David is long gone. And so what does Saul do? He just takes his rage for David and he transfers it onto the priests. And if anything, the ferocity of this attack just shows us how frustrated Saul currently is. Surely what we see here is a king whose kingdom is slipping away. He's paranoid. He's angry. And his closest ally is a nasty piece of work. Surely what we see here is God bringing about his word. He has promised that he's going to take the kingdom away from Saul. That's exactly what he's doing. See, Saul was actually right about one thing. There was a conspiracy against the king. Because there was always a king who was higher than King Saul. God was always the king of the nation. Saul was like an under king. And Saul is the one who is, in, is conspiring against the true God. And yet, what is the big principle in this passage? What's the one thing that we need to remember? It's this. The kingdoms of those who rebel against the true king are never as strong as they like to think they are. And that's something that every single one of us needs to know this morning. The kingdom of darkness all around us is never as strong as we're tempted to think. And by the grace of Jesus Christ, the true king, just like the kingdom of Saul, the kingdom of darkness is slipping away. 
That's the first king we see in this passage. We'll spend a brief uh, bit of time on the second passage. And what we see here is David's kingdom. So we see David's kingdom. Now, that is not an entirely accurate thing for me to say because David, of course, isn't king yet. He's not going to be king for quite some time. And yet, the fact is, David is the man that God has chosen to be king. And even though David is on the run, we can start to see signs that his kingdom is starting to take shape. I think we could call David's kingdom at this point, we could call it an embryonic kingdom, couldn't we? Robert and Chloe, you'll know all about that. Your baby has been developing, hidden from everybody else for all these months. And that's what's happening with David's kingdom. Um, It can't be seen, but it's developing all the time. And I want to show you a couple of hints that David's kingdom is developing. First of all, we've got verse 2. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered round him and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. Okay, it's a bit of a ragtag bunch. If you were to choose, would you rather have 400 of Saul's soldiers or 400 of these guys? I think you would pick Saul's soldiers. They're nowhere near as impressive as Saul's men are. And yet, what do we have here? We have men, and they are bowing down, and they are pledging themselves to the one that God has chosen. And as we are going to see over and over again over the next few months, David is a forerunner of the true king. He's a forerunner of King Jesus. And I read this verse and I think it's actually very similar to how Christ's mission on earth began. His followers were a ragtag bunch. They weren't nobles, uh, they weren't influential politicians, they were just ordinary people. If you were to look at David, or if you were to look at Jesus, you wouldn't say that you were looking at a kingdom. And yet God built something in Jesus that took the whole world by storm. And that's not just a historical note, I think there's a lesson for us today. Here we are followers of the true king we seem far less impressive than the foot soldiers of the kingdom of darkness and yet god builds christ's kingdom doesn't he let me point you to another hint that this embryonic kingdom of david is starting to take shape notice that one of the men by david's side in verse 5 is the prophet gad And the prophet Gad says to David, he brings a message from God, do not stay in the stronghold, but go into the land of Judah. Which is interesting, because when Saul puts Ahimelech on trial, one of his supposed crimes is that he inquired of the Lord for David. I wonder... Is that actually what has enraged Saul more than anything else? More than giving David bread, more than giving him the sword of Goliath, it's because he inquired of the Lord for David. Because as we've seen and as we will see, 
God has very pointedly, very deliberately stopped revealing himself to Saul. In fact, I think I'm right in saying from here on in, there is only one more time that God will directly speak to Saul. And it's in chapter 28. And God's message to Saul is basically, you're done for. And yet, even as Saul is stumbling around in confusion, here is God in verse 5. And through the prophet Gad, he is clearly and unambiguously telling David exactly where to go. And surely that is a sign that God is with David. I think it's the same with us. The kingdom of this world is confused. The world is just stumbling around, stumbling here, stumbling there, trying to find what it's looking for, but never actually finding it. And yet here we are, and we have a God who has made himself known to us. He has revealed himself in his son and in his word. And he does it clearly and unambiguously. And so we don't need to stagger around. Surely that's a sign that the blessing of God is upon the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We can make a similar point in verse 20. There's one priest who managed to escape the massacre, a man called Abiathar. And in verse 20, he comes to David. And again, we've got a stark contrast between David and Saul. Because Saul doesn't have any priests. I mean, he's just killed 85 of them. But David has a priest by his side. Saul has no one to represent him before the one true God. But David does. Let me give you one more contrast between the embryonic kingdom of David and the kingdom of Saul. And more, more importantly, it's the difference between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Christ. And before I tell you the difference, let me tell you why it's important. It's important because you have to choose between these two kingdoms. There's no such thing as being neutral. There's no such thing as sitting on the fence. It's impossible. Either you're in the kingdom of Christ or you're in the kingdom of the world. And this passage sums up perfectly for us the difference between the two kingdoms. What does the kingdom of darkness have to offer you? Well, Saul sums it up in verse 16, doesn't he? You shall surely die. Will you not listen to those words this morning and run for your life just like Abiathar? Will you not flee to the one true king who offers mercy and safety and salvation for everyone who bows before him? It's so, so important. You have to choose. Maybe you have done that. Maybe you are a member of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
Well, if that's you this morning, listen to the words of your king and your saviour as they echo in the words of David. What does David say in verse 23? Very last verse of the passage. You will be safe with me. Which kingdom are you in? You have to choose. The kingdom of death or the kingdom of everlasting life.